Early Risers is supported by Health Partners and Park Nicollet. From rashes, fevers, shots, and all other things that make you worry a lot, Health Partners has pediatric care for your kids. Visit healthpartners.com slash schedule. From Little Moments Count and Minnesota Public Radio, this is Early Risers, waking up to racial equity in early childhood. I'm your host, Diane Halsey with Think Small in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This podcast is about how to talk with very young children about race and racism. On today's episode, I'm going to have a conversation about transracial adoption and how to talk about race in multiracial families. For a lot of people, starting a conversation about race and racism with young kids can be hard for different reasons. I've heard from some listeners who wanted guidance on how to have these conversations, particularly in multiracial families. That includes families that have adopted transracially, meaning that a child has been adopted into a family of a different race. Families like Beth Hall's. Race does matter, and it was going to matter to my children. And if I was going to parent them from a place of it not mattering, I was not going to be an effective, caring, loving, and supportive parent. And to me, that was my goal. Beth Hall is co-author of the book, Inside Transracial Adoption. And she's the executive director of an organization called PACT in Oakland, California, that supports children of color in adoption. Beth also has personal experience with transracial adoption. She's the white parent of two adult children who were both born in the United States. She and her husband adopted a son who's African-American and a daughter with roots in Guatemala. Through her personal and professional experience, Beth has gathered valuable insights and advice for anyone who wants to talk about race with young children. First of all, Beth, I just want to say thank you for agreeing to talk with me. It's a pleasure meeting you through Zoom. Um, (laughs) One of the questions that I like to just ask a lot of my guests right off the bat is, when was the first time you, as a young child, were talked to about race by an adult? I think I was somewhere between eight and 10. And in fact, when I had that conversation was when we were traveling with a good friend of my mother's, Mm -hmm. an African-American woman, and we had an experience in a hotel where she was being treated poorly Mm. and differently from us because of, I mean, it was a racist experience. And it was the first time, and I loved this woman. Mm. And it was the first time I had seen that up close and personal. And I had a lot of questions and my mother was uncomfortable talking about it, but she talked Uh. to me about it, which was a gift, of course, to have someone help me understand, oh, the world isn't a right and just and fair place in the way that the bubble I grew up in often mm-hmm. was portrayed. My mother, she didn't know how to have that conversation. And again, like I think many white people, assumed that somehow having the conversation might be being racist, as if yes. telling the truth could be that, right? I mean, and yes. couldn't couldn't pull that apart. 
which meant, of course, then as an adult, if she couldn't pull it apart, she shouldn't surely couldn't help me as a child pull it apart. Right. So because I was parenting children of color Mm -hmm. that, oh, I have to be on a different track here than how I was raised, because if I'm not, they'll be done with the conversation when I'm just starting it. Oh, I don't want that's not good parenting. (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) I need to be there for them and part of the conversation, which, of course, for me, as someone who wasn't raised that way and as someone who receives a lot of unearned privileges, I had no instruction in how to do that. So it's it's a steep learning curve. Mm. So you talk about your children and I want to talk about that because you and your husband, I believe, made the decision to adopt transracially at at some point. Your children are adults now. Right. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about what all kind of went into that decision for you? Well, first of all, let me say I'm infertile. So that's part of what drove our even contemplation of adoption. Mm-hmm. But I also grew up in an adoptive family. My sister was adopted. So I actually knew something about adoption. I watched it my whole life. But when we decided to adopt um, after we had experienced infertility, I wanted to be a mother. And I was driven to be a mother, honestly. Mm. And I think if I had been asked the same question you just asked me at the time of it, I would have said something like, I don't care what race the child is. I'll adopt any child blue, green, purple, or orange. Hmm. I now see that as a pretty racist statement. Hmm. Uh, There are no blue, green, purple, and orange people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is a privilege to be able to basically say that race doesn't matter or that I'm colorblind. And that's effectively what I now see I was saying. I share that to say, you know, we're all on a journey of understanding. Yes, yes. <laughs> and there was a great deal I did not understand <laughs> at that time. And uh, my personal life experience allowed me to not understand that and to be blind to some of that. But what I know and most firmly believe and have been taught not only by my, by my children, but by many people, is that race does matter. Yes. And it was going to matter to my children. And if I was going to parent them from a place of it not mattering, I was not going to be an effective, caring, loving, and supportive parent. And to me, that was my goal. So, you know, it was very selfish, as I think most of us come to parenting from a selfish place. (laughs) And that's okay, as long as we acknowledge it and move beyond that, in my view. Right. And move to the place where children's needs become the center of our world not our own needs. So that was a, I had to make a huge shift <laughs> to, to do that. Right. But that's where I started. So that is so interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about PAC because you um, do some work with white parents who are adopting transracially. Can you talk a little bit about how you prepare them to have these conversations like What are you telling them when they should have these conversations with their children about race? And how are you helping them to have these conversations? Right. Thank you for that question. And so kids are very concrete thinkers. We know that, right? Yes. Yes. So kids and and kids, preschoolers, babies are categorizing everything. Circles and triangles, yellow Mm -hmm. and blue, you know, uh, 
Mm-hmm. And hello, people, <laughs> right? Yes, that's because right. that's what we do. Research mm-hmm. says that by six to eight months old, babies can categorize people by who they look like and who yes. looks like them. Yes. So clearly, transracial adoption is going to raise some interesting challenges to that for both mm-hmm. parent and child. So it, it's my belief. And when people ask me, when should we start? I pretty much my standard answer is today. Whatever today Mm. is, however old Mm -hmm. they are, you know, when our children are babies, true babies, I think most of it's practice for us, right? We we can try it out. (laughs) So, but especially those of us that are white, or if you're a different race than your child, it becomes very important to think about how am I affirming how beautiful you are. You know, go back to the Clark doll test where these Mm. babies, three and four-year-olds are saying, no, I want to be like the white doll because they're nice, beautiful, pretty, Mm. you know, all Mm. the things. And that's still happening today. And that should break our heart. That Clark Dow test Beth Hall just mentioned was a research experiment that was originally conducted by Black psychologists Kenneth and Mamie Clark in the 1940s. They presented children with identical dolls of different skin tones and asked them questions like, which one is the nice doll? And which one is the pretty doll? Most of the children, regardless of their race, said they preferred the white dolls over the black dolls. Others have repeated this Clark Dow test experiment more recently and with similar results, like in this clip from an MSNBC report in 2008. And and why is that doll pretty? Because she's white and he has two eyes. Which doll is the ugly doll? Why is that doll ugly? Because Because he's black. Which doll looks most like you? Yeah, which one looks like you? And And there's no way those parents told them to think that. Those kids weren't being raised transracially. They were being raised inracially. And no parent would tell their child that. This is what the world tells children, which means as parents, as I see it, we have to do a great deal of work to counterbalance that message, that negative message that erodes self-esteem, that erodes self-agency, that erodes Mm. pride, that erodes all those things, Mm -hmm. right? So, and if we're a different race than our children, it's not going to come inherently. So if you have children, your children are going to look at you and see an accomplished, proud, beautiful Black woman. Mm -hmm. My children look at me and see hopefully an accomplished, hopefully a proud, but white woman. And I'm their most trusted ally in that moment, right? At a year or six months or two years old or whatever. It sets them up to believe that that's the ideal. Yeah. And eventually, and not very after very long, they're going to figure out they can't be that. Which means I have to counter that message in a very proactive way. Therefore, I cannot wait for them to ask. I cannot, Mm. you know, I can't sit around Mm -hmm. and think that somehow they're going to know because I love them so very much, which of course I do. Right. But, But the world is giving them a different message. And even our family is giving them a different message just by being who we are. So we have to be proactive in countering 
that message. I can't do that by myself because I'm white. So I have to be connected. I have to be active and I have to be talking about it. Yes, that is so powerful. And there's a couple of things that I've I've heard you talk about. So one is you say that a lot of transracially adopted children, very young, will say to their parents or to whomever that they want to be white. Yes, they do. A huge number do. We hear this all the time from parents. And isn't that a natural consequence of having white parents? I mean, of course, you you they look at us with such you know, they're reliant on us. I mean, they Mm -hmm. need us. And so, again, we have to... I remember my son... Do you mind if I tell a little story? Absolutely. We were going to some preschool event. You know, there's a million events when they're little. Right. Of course, we were running late. We were supposed to bring potluck. You know, we're trying to herd two kids Mm -hmm. out of the house Mm -hmm. and yada, yada, yada. And our son goes to wait on the porch for us. And walking down the street is a young man... Not a man, probably 13 or 14, right? But big compared to my son, who was three or something or whatever. And he knows he's not supposed to go all the way outside when he's waiting, you know, when no adult is there to get the car. So he's sitting there and we come out. Of course, we're in a rush. Don't want to have conversations right now. And isn't that always when the conversation happens with our kids, right? Right. (laughs) And our son says to us, oh, look, I stayed on the porch because I saw a dangerous stranger there. We look over and see this kid. Hmm. Well, of course, that kid is our son in 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. He's three now. But this is a right. 13-year-old Black youth who's doing nothing but listening to music and enjoying it, walking down the street. And my husband hmm. did this incredible moment of parenting. My husband bends down to my son and says to him, James, look at that boy. That's what you're going to look like. And James got these little round eyes. You know how kids do when something actually penetrates? Right. And he got it. He listened to what my husband said. That conversation probably lasted a good year around our dinner table. Of Why would people be afraid of this boy? He wasn't doing anything. Are people going to be afraid of me? That's where it went. And my daughter, of course, was part of it too. Those are the real conversations we have to have. And it's my personal belief, if we're having those conversations with our kids, you know, kids love to be the fairness police. They're social justice minions from the youngest of ages, aren't they? (laughs) I didn't get the whole cookie and that's (laughs) not fair and whatever. But about this too, that's right. (laughs) They can Mm -hmm. handle it when we say, you know, did you know that some people think other people aren't as good as they are because of the color of their skin? They're going to have right. a reaction to that. That's not right. And if they are that skin color that's being targeted, which, of course, my children, I presume your children are, mm-hmm. then they're going to have a personal reaction to that as well. Right? right. But even if I'm talking to a white child, they, too, are going to have a reaction to that. That's right. And the conversation, yeah. if we don't start there, how are we going to get to the conversation about what are we going to do to change this? How can we make this be better? This yes. is not right. And we need to change it. 
What I love about what your husband did is that he opened up the conversation. Yes. And so your son and if your daughter was around hearing, then knew that he could talk to you all about that. Yes. A lot of times we we hear that parents are saying that I don't want to raise the issue of race because I'm afraid that that is either racist or that they'll get scared. Yep. You talk about that a little bit about uh, how we prepare our children for scary things. And what do you say about that? Well, often I use one of two examples. One is crossing the street. I live in an urban area. I live in Oakland, Mm -hmm. California. My children grew up in an urban area. Believe me, when we got to corners and they wanted to dash out in the street, they heard in a sharp and clear way that that was not going to happen. Why was that? Because we knew they could die in the street. Right. And uh, right. we didn't care if they were scared. We wanted them to be scared. So there's <laughs> right. healthy scared. <laughs> what I say a lot to particularly people that are sort of saying, well, I don't want to scare them. I'm like, well, I do because my son is now a black man. He needs to understand what's safe and what's not. And part of that revolves around race, his race. Is that fair? Of course not. Do I wish that for him? Of course not. Were those conversations hard? Of course. But they're true. And I am not going to risk his life over scaring him. And I use quotations there. If you believe that we are not living in a racially safe, supportive, and equitable time, which I certainly do, then how can you not (laughs) prepare your children to manage that? If we don't tell them, how are they going to know? And the dangers are too great to do that, in my opinion. I probably went, if you talk to my kids, I mean, my kids used to, when they were older, they would sometimes say to me, mom, talk to the hand. What that meant in our family (laughs) was, we get it. You talk about this 24-7. They would both roll their eyes to you and say, she never shut up about it. But they also, when something happens, when George Floyd gets murdered, when... My son gets followed in the store or my daughter gets mm-hmm. asked to open her purse or whatever it might be, which happens, of course. They call me. Yeah. That's what I was hoping for, that I yes. could be seen as an ally who yes, could try yes. to help. I didn't always know how, but I always tried to. I'm Diane Halsey, and you're listening to Early Risers, Waking Up to Racial Equity in Early Childhood. My guest today is Beth Hall, an expert on transracial adoption and co-author of the book Inside Transracial Adoption. As I was preparing to start this podcast, I had a conversation with someone I know about her experience adopting transracially from Central America, including what happened when extended family members made racist remarks in front of her daughter when she was little. I found a clip from that conversation and played it for Beth during our interview. So I'd like to play this clip for you, and then I'd love to get your feedback on it. Okay. I think my stepfather was talking about basketball players, and he was making disparaging remarks about African-American basketball players. And I said, your granddaughter's sitting right here. You can't talk like that, you know. And it's like, well, what does this have to do with her? And I said, it has everything to do with her. 
you know, she mm-hmm. is Hispanic. She is a person of color and you're talking like this. And totally did not understand. I mean, they understood that I perceived it as something hurtful, but they truly believed it had nothing to do with her or their love for her. And we have talked about that. I mean, she has some memories that those things happening and that I didn't say things. I didn't speak up. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that 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 must be true. She wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. So even though as a child, she was appearing to not react, she remembers. She absolutely vividly. She remembered that vividly. Wow. And she could tell me with each one. And she was very articulate. Yes, I love them. And yes, they said incredibly racist things. Yeah, still hear this all the time. And we all go through it. I mean, so I'm going to use a word that a lot of us white people don't like, but this country is built on white supremacy. It. It was, Mm. it is. And I try to use the word because it pushes me to be in reality, right? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. if we can't handle the truth, it's going to be hard to help our children learn to navigate the world. And so what I love about what she did and said in this situation is she's right. She understood that her children, her child, my children, Mm -hmm. absolutely understand that even if she wasn't African-American, that she's only one step over from that. (laughs) And that him (laughs) saying that puts her in danger too. I think that we have to teach children that we can love people we disagree with. Mm -hmm. And part of the way we do that in family is we must stand up for certain things. And if people are saying things that are so toxic that our children should not be around them, then Mm -hmm. we should remove them. However, the world is filled with toxicity. And part of what we have to teach our children is how to not internalize toxicity, including from people we might love, like family. If we say, I'm never going to allow a single racist thing to penetrate my child's reality and I'm going to remove them from every situation. Good luck with that because you're going to be living somewhere in a bubble (laughs) I haven't found, right? That's not going to happen. So what we have to do instead, I believe, is take an approach of building a strong set of muscles to push back on such things. What we also have to do is have zero tolerance ourselves. And when I say zero tolerance, mm-hmm. I mean zero. I cannot tolerate racial slurs, whether my children are in the mm. room or not in the room. That is part okay. of my parenting mm-hmm. journey. It, mm-hmm. I must consider it my job to stand up to that. Because if it isn't, then I'm basically acquiescing to a racist system and saying that's okay with me. And that means I'm not on the side of my children, right? And anyone else. And right, in my opinion. But, you know, that's my ethical standard. And it sounds like mom mostly did that. Although if I was going to advise her, was this 30 years ago when it happened, I might have said, and I probably did this too. What one thing she did say was she was doing it for her daughter, but eventually it has to be for us. 
We mm. have to find it unacceptable to live in a racist world, which I'm sure she does. You know, and often we do at first refer to our children, which even that they're taking in as if, oh, so this is just for me. Like I require this special handling. No, right. the world requires that we stop this insanity, this bias, this this racist approach to things and that we become anti-racist and our kids deserve to see us taking it personal not to kick everyone out of our family but to absolutely say this is not okay and grandpa i need an agreement from you i may not be able to change your mind about what you think about african-american basketball players but i don't want that to be talked about when we are in the house either myself or my daughter can you make that agreement for nice. me? Because that's my parenting stance. And I okay. need you to agree to live with that, even if you don't agree with me. And my kids need to hear me say that. The last thing I'll yes. say about that scenario is it exotifies our children. It turns them into the exception to the rule. Well, you might be a person of color, but you're not like them, which uh, denies them mm-hmm. their community. Instead of mm-hmm. saying, embrace this community. It belongs to you. And safety, especially when facing oppression, comes from understanding that you're not the only one and that people have developed strong tools and strong community to counterbalance Mm -hmm. the negative message of oppression. That's that's so good. And I want to talk a little bit about like the community because we've been talking a lot about parents, but how can preschool teachers or early childhood teachers or extended family and friends that have children that are transracially adopted in their lives, how can they be supportive and how can they learn to build this um, language up? Yep. Well, they too need to learn how to talk about it, which for some is Mm -hmm. (laughs) a new concept, right? So I don't just have to say, oh, you're such a beautiful little girl or such a beautiful little boy or whatever I might say to a child. But look at that beautiful dark brown skin you have. It's so beautiful, you know, that Mm. I'm going to actually acknowledge. That's often where it starts with very, very young children, right? My kids used to love to be in the bathtub, both of them in the tub. My kids are only 18 months apart. Both of them in the tub, my husband and I, and we're all comparing our skin tones, right? Mm. And eventually, of course, that, and of course it started with chocolate milk or cookie dough or whatever they came Mm -hmm, up with. mm -hmm. And eventually we taught them the words of the world. You know, the world's going to call you black, but my skin color isn't black. That's true. But this is what black means in the world. And, and he needs to know mm. that too, as does she, right? Yes. So eventually, yes. you know, we get more sophisticated with time. So I think it's important that, again, important adults, teachers, caregivers, extended family, do that with kids and validate who they are, which includes race. It's not their only characteristic, but it's one of them. But I also think that, For people in those positions who are people of color, Mm -hmm. they have an even more important role potentially to play in the lives of these children, really Mm. claiming them, helping them understand Mm -hmm. that they belong in a community that exists is just a beautiful gift. Remember my son, we when he was whatever age you are, six or something, um, yeah. was going to want to play baseball. And in Oakland, by the way, a fairly diverse city. Yeah. So in Oakland, there's two leagues at the time. 
one kind of had quite a bit of money, was had a field that was beautiful, kind of at the foothills. Okay. So mm-hmm. there was that league, which had more money. And oh, by the way, it was probably 95% white. And then there was the other league, which was called the Babe Ruth League, which was in a part of Oakland that many might consider not quote unquote safe, i.e. a lot of black and brown people live there, a lot of mm-hmm, poverty. Mm-hmm. The field was filled with ditches and holes and stuff. They did not have fancy uniforms. We joined our son to that league. There were very few games when we were not the only white people in the stand. And every time my son, James, came up to bat, the whole community would shout out his name Mm. and tell him, you're going to get it this time, James. You go, baby. You go, you know, whatever they were saying to him. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I would watch my little son puff up and feel good about himself. Mm. I would have done anything for those people for that moment. Mm-hmm. I did. Now, mm-hmm. why, why were they doing it? Let me tell you. Number one, they felt sorry for him because he had white parents. They knew it. Of course they knew it. We were the only white people there. <laughs> Go, James. You know, whatever we were doing. Right. Did right. they all invite us over to their house every day? No. Every time we talked about fundraising, they all turned to look to me. And you know what? I stepped up every time because they were giving him a gift I couldn't give him. Mm-hmm. And I think... Beautiful. Was it ever awkward to be the only white people there? Sure, especially in the beginning, if we hadn't done a lot of that, right? We Mm -hmm. need to get over ourselves and move into communities. They saw us trusting them to hold him up, or that's what I'd like Mm -hmm. to believe, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to give back to them to support their community. And that was enough for them because they were delighted to love on him. And that's all we needed from him. If I interviewed all these people, those people in that stand and said, do you believe in transracial adoption? I'm assuming 90% of them would have said no. Right. And that's okay. I don't need them to approve my thing. I need them to love on my right. son. So that's yeah. what we need from people of color. We need you all mm. to claim them. Understand if you are a teacher or a caregiver that matches a child who's in a family that they don't match, you have a real opportunity to make a real difference in the life of a child and do something that those parents cannot do for their own child. They can't. Mm. And and that that child absolutely means. And sometimes I think people look at our kids and are worried. They don't know how to act. You know, they don't always know all the vernacular of what might be polite in one household might not be polite in ours. And we've taught them, you know, different values or whatever that, that you might not be totally comfortable with, but you still have the opportunity to help them understand they still belong. And that is one of the hugest things that they grow up not being sure about. And that's dangerous for them. It's dangerous for them if they don't feel that they can rely on and count on people within their community, their racial community. Well, Beth, this has been such um, an invigorating <laughs> conversation. And that last story about your son just almost brings tears Me to my too. eyes. <laughs> thinking about him puffing yep. up as the community around him is lifting him up and cheering him on. I love that story. Yeah. Um, before we go, can you mention any resources perhaps that you use, impact, or suggest to be to your parents that um, parents can use to kind of get knowledgeable and you know build up their strength and courage to have these conversations. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so obviously, Pact offers some of those, and you can go to our website. 
I think it's really helpful. We have monthly support groups for transracial parents. And some of those folks, they have babies. And too often Mm. what I hear from them, Diane, is why did no one tell us this before? Good question. That's on us, us professionals, but get it. (laughs) So wherever it is, but remember, it's not just getting it from other white parents of kids of color. It's really connecting to your child's racial heritage community. And that's not just one person. No one person embodies all that. I don't embody all that it means to be a woman or to be white. And yet often in the context of race, We put that on people of color as if one person could represent the totality of what it means to be black, brown, whatever it might be. Um, Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful about that and really do our work. And to me, that means really analyzing our lives. Where do I live? And what I say, it's not about who do I work with, because most of us don't bring our three-year-old to work with us. It's about (laughs) who do I love? I better not Mm -hmm. just love one person of color that happens to be my child. There better be more than that in my Mm -hmm. life. And that means who do I eat dinner with? Who do I worship Mm -hmm. with? Who am I in community with? That's what our Mm -hmm. children need to see. Mm -hmm. If they don't see that from us, forget extended family members. If they don't see that from us, the question is, again, why are they the exception to the rule, right? Are they become the Mm. exception to their race? And that's a hard place to function from when they get older. And we're not with them for every minute. The other thing I'll say, Diane, is I think the voices of lived experience are terribly, terribly important. So I'm here talking as a white adopted parent. I have a certain lived experience, Mm. but we need to listen to adoptees of color who were raised Mm. transracially, who have a lot to say about what they needed. They may not remember what they needed as a two-year-old because most of us don't remember what we needed as a two-year-old, but they know that parents who didn't talk about these things, parents who still won't talk about these things, parents Mm -hmm. who lived in all white areas where as they got older, they were literally afraid to go home because they might be pulled over. We need to listen to them. That lived experience is critical. So I'm a huge believer in lifting up the voices of adult adoptees of color and really listening to them. Even with my 30-year-olds, I learn something every time I listen. Mm, Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for coming on Early Risers. I have had a wonderful time talking with you today. (laughs) Thank you. I have too. And good for you for doing this and for making changes that need to happen for all of us, right? And for kids. It starts so early. Beth Hall is the executive director of PACT, an adoption alliance based in Oakland, California. You can learn more about PACT at pactadopt.org. PACT has a really great resource library with links to books, articles, and videos, including how to talk with children about race and racism. We've posted links to some of those resources on our episode page. Before we go, I wanted to let you know that my team at Think Small Institute has just published a series of discussion guides for all of our season one episodes. So if you haven't listened to our first season, or even if you have, 
It's a great opportunity to listen and dig a little deeper. We really want to empower listeners with concrete tools to be able to have these conversations. Also this season, we're building discussion guides for all of our new episodes, including this conversation with Beth Hall. Look for those new episodes and discussion guides at npr.org backslash early risers. While you're there, you can also subscribe to this podcast. And for more resources on how to talk with very young children about race and racism, visit littlemomentscount.org. This episode of Early Risers was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum. Our technical director is Alex Simpson, and our executive producer is Andrea Bork. Kaviesh Kavaraj composed our theme song, I Still Remember. Additional music in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions on the Free Music Archive. Special thanks to the whole team at Little Moments Count and NPR. I'm your host, Diane Halsey. Thanks for listening.